0: friends and welcome to the u-turn podcast this is your host ashley Stahl. i'm a career expert a speaker a best-selling author of the book u-turn get unstuck discover your direction design your dream career And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. U-Turn friends, today is so much fun and so exciting because I'm having Dr. Kristen Neff on the show. She is the Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She got her doctorate at UC Berkeley. And in her last year of graduate school, she became really interested in Buddhism and meditation. And um, believe it or not, I actually enrolled in a Buddhism 101 course just two weeks ago and a meditation teacher training just two weeks ago on a whim. And so I have so many questions for her. And I want to talk to her um, about her book, Self-Compassion, which is called Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Um, And in June 2021, she has another book, Fear Self-Compassion. So, I mean, there's just so much here. Thank you, Dr. Neff, for being here with me.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Ashley. Happy Happy to talk with you.
0: Yeah, I actually, um, I remember the first time I heard one of your meditations, it was in a dialectical behavioral therapy training. Oh, okay. And, and um, it was, you'd asked in the meditation to think of a very strong person in your life or, or figure that you looked up to. Um, and it was really interesting because I'd never even thought about that, which is, you know, like, who who do I really, truly admire? Mm-hmm. And it was so special in that meditation for me to, Identify those qualities in myself too, the person. And so you're so great at that. And um, I've I've highlighted your book left and right. Those of you who are listening, I can't recommend her self-compassion book enough. Um, And and you say here in the book, self-compassion doesn't mean that I think my problems are more important than yours. It just means I think my problems are also important and worthy of being attended to. And I love that so much. Um, because sometimes people will see compassion and abandon themselves and care about others. And there's that stigma. Yeah. So tell me, what inspired you in this work? What brought you here?
1: Well, it really was a personal practice of self-compassion. So, you know, I didn't I didn't come up with the idea. I, like you said, I learned about it in, um, I learned about Buddhism. It was a um, tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a recently passed a Zen master who always talked about the importance of turning compassion inward as well as outward. It's kind of 360 degrees. You don't exclude anyone, including yourself. And I was going through a difficult time at the moment. I was being stressed about, you know, when I get a job after getting my PhD and I had gone through a really messy divorce and I was feeling badly about myself. And so I, I tried intentionally being kinder more supportive, more understanding, more encouraging toward myself. And I just immediately saw the difference it made in my ability to cope. It was night and day. Like the moment I made that mind shift, um, that mind shift, things became more workable instead of, you know, just shaming myself. I'm a bad person is hopeless. So then I, when I got a job at, at UT Austin as a, as a professor, um, I decided I wanted to do research on it mm-hmm. because, you know, it just made sense that this really works like I I feel like it works and I should be able to show that empirically. And that's really how I started. I started doing research on it and developed scale to measure it. Um, But I didn't just do the research. And then what happened is they met um, my colleague, Chris Germer, about 10 years ago. And he said, hey, Kristen, researching isn't enough. You need to figure out how to teach people to do this. So that's uh, where our collaboration came in. And Really now, even more than doing research, I mainly focus on teaching people how to be self-compassionate. That's you know, awesome. I I
0: love what you're sharing. And it's interesting because in the business world, um, we interviewed an, the author of the book Chatter. And he talks about like how to slow down mental chatter. and Yeah. He, yeah do you know him? I think he's- yeah, like, Ethan Cross. Yeah. Yeah. He was- a uh-huh, Yeah. And he um, talked about like putting yourself out of your body and looking at your situation as if it's someone else's. Yes. Um, how would you give that advice to a friend? And I know that he talks about that in his interview on the show here. Yeah. So it's almost like your body of work is another look at, at a similar concept of, of speaking kindly to yourself. Um, but I know a lot of people listening, maybe they grew up in a world where like the way they got motivation was by being really hard on themselves. Yeah. But what comes to mind is people who don't activate until the deadline is in front of them and they're like in chaos and stress. Right. And panic and terror is what gets them through it.
1: Yes, yeah. And so you know it does kind of work. People wouldn't do it if it didn't have, didn't work at all. And a lot of people have gone through like law school based on harsh self-criticism. But it has a lot of negative side effects. So for instance, it does create anxiety. and anxiety has some usefulness. It can energize you, but it, we also know it undermines performance. Mm-hmm. We can't be in a flow state where we're really just being at our best. If we're being distracted by all this fear and anxiety, it also creates fear of failure, right? So if if, if you know you're going to shame yourself, if you fail, you're going to really beat yourself up, it creates this fear of failure. Many times that means you just might not even try or take a risk because the consequences are too great. Uh, and so what we know is that encouragement actually works better than harsh self-criticism as a motivator. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't mean like saying, oh, that's fine. It's good enough. Maybe it's not good enough. For instance, we just um, writing up this paper now, we taught self-compassion to NCAA athletes. And Mm -hmm. the stakes are really high at that level, right? And what they found is that, first of all, they loved self-compassion because they saw it as a way for them to keep their cool when they fail. Because if you're an athlete and you lose it when you fail, or you like kind of just get distracted by feelings of shame, you've lost the game. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, failure happens, it's part of the experience. What can I learn from this? How can I grow? And that's what self-compassionate motivation gives you. It kind of normalizes failure. It's just part of the human experience. And it focuses on alleviating suffering or, or enhancing well-being as opposed to judgments of self is worthy or not, which actually don't really help your performance at all, right? Um, and by the way, their performance increased, both in terms of their own ratings and their coaches' ratings of their performance. Mm. So it's an effective form of motivations, constructive criticism, with the bottom line being, being even if you fail, you're still okay. But if, you're, if it's important to you, go for it. Let's see how far we can go.
0: Hey U-Turn friend, are you ready to enjoy a calm moment with something really nourishing? I have something for you, and it's Gold Power by Organifi. The golden powder tastes like a cozy moment in and of itself. It's cinnamony, it's comforting, and it's packed with good ingredients like turmeric, ginger, reishi mushroom, lemon balm, and prebiotics. As soon as the afternoon slump hits, instead of letting myself have yet another cup of coffee, I try to pour this gold powder into my favorite hot nut milk. It's simply divine, it makes my sweet tooth so happy, and its superfood blends just make it easy to add more variety and nutrition into my day. If you'd like to give gold powder a try, I cannot recommend it enough. Just head on over to Organifi.com slash U-Turn and make sure to use the code U-Turn at checkout for 20% off. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N and use the code U-Turn for checkout. Yeah, it's it's so cool to have someone have done research on this because- I think it's easy to get on a mic and say, it's easier to be nice to yourself and you're going to get further. And it's like a pep talk fluffy thing. Yeah. But when you can actually look at data and say, this works, it's like there's so many people who are living from their headspace so much that that kind of proof is going to work for those tactical thinkers in the business world as much as it's going to work for people like me who
1: are soft and want (laughs) to
0: think that way anyhow. Right.
1: Yeah, but, but it does work. That's yeah. why there's an explosion of research, and because it, you know it's like, I you know I've I've done work researching it and I teach it, but it's really self compassion that does all the work because it works. It's effective, right? I mean, you can try it out yourself. You don't have to believe anyone. You can give it a try. Now, now sometimes people think self compassion means just being soft on yourself or or tender with yourself, um, but really, there's these two sides of self compassion: the tender and the fierce. Mm-hmm. Tender is about self-acceptance. You know, even if we fail, we're we're still okay. And it's about accepting the fact that life is hard. Stuff happens. It's imperfect. And so that there's acceptance, but there's also about fierce action, because if you want to alleviate your suffering, and that's that's the motivational core of compassion—desire to alleviate suffering. If you want to alleviate your suffering, sometimes you know we need to say no. We need to be fierce. We need to stand up for ourselves. Draw boundaries. Or we need to make change in the world or maybe change in our behavior or situations. Um, We need to take active steps to meet our needs as opposed to just being complacent. Mm -hmm. And it's like like yin and yang. We need both fierceness and tenderness to be whole and complete. But sometimes people get that wrong and they think self-compassion is just about the softness and the tenderness. Well, if that starts meaning that you're accepting things that you shouldn't accept, it's no longer compassionate because it's harming you. It's not helping you.
0: You know, I have so much to ask you, A, just reading your book and thinking about your examples you gave for like being stuck in traffic. And I feel like that every day in New York City, like I'll walk (laughs) with my dog and it's like three people are on their phone and it's so crowded and you're like, nobody can even walk by each other. You cannot look down on your phone in this sidewalk with cars going by. And it just feels so easy to be like, screw you. You are making this so hard. Yeah. How yeah. do you shift into compassion for people when you almost have this mindset? Like, I think a lot of people have a mindset and I've definitely been one of them where it's like, this person's in my way. And if it wasn't for this person or this thing, my okay. life would be better. So how do you kind of shift <laughs>
2: the
1: narrative? Yeah. Well, first of all, you don't want your happiness to be dependent on what other people do, because if that's the case, you, you aren't going to be happy, Right. <laughs> So it's really finding a different source for you know happiness and fulfillment and contentment, which is more inward rather than outward. Again, not meaning that we don't do everything in our power to make situations better. Of course we do. It's not compassionate if we don't. But you know things like first of all validating the fact that it's frustrating, giving yourself you know kindness and understanding because it's frustrating, um, and and then when when you get. What happens, let's say I'm really frustrated because people are getting in my way. Then I might say something like, this is so frustrating. Oh, you know, it's hard. You know, it's difficult. I'm, you know, stressful. And then what happens is instead of your, your mindset being only taken up by this the frustration, part of your mindset is taken up by the compassion toward that frustration. And compassion, which feels kind, which feels warm, which feels connected to others, that actually feels good. So you're actually introducing a new element into your experience. And what happens is eventually you start to care more about not not necessarily what's happening, but how are you relating to what's happening. Is your mind open? Is your heart open? Do you feel stable? You know, do you feel calm? Um, are you are you uh, wanting to help in some way? And then you start to start to rest in that. Mm -hmm. It's actually saying we have the compassion world, which is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. Mm. In other words, we're still going to be a mess. We're still going to get it wrong. We're still going to get frustrated and pissed off and people walking down the street on their phones. All that's still going to happen. But the shift is you start to have compassion for the messiness of life. And that actually starts to be your goal. And that's really what starts to change things. Because the more compassion we have, ironically, or kind of paradoxically, the more ability we have to change things for the better. Although we will never be able to totally control either ourselves or other people. That's just a fact of life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know,
0: really helpful because I. I don't know, like I had a big sister. She passed away four years ago uh. and she would she became homeless after being a drug addict. And I tried everything to help her. Even when I created mm. success in my business, I wanted to support her, but there was nothing I could do. And her uh. being homeless, I used to visit her in the park where she chose to live. And she had all these other homeless people there that were her protectors. So she would talk about how like, this is Barry. And, you know, Barry had like one tooth and he was like this angel that if I didn't know any of this story, I'd be scared of him on the yeah. street. Like especially in New York. Like I was just reflecting that in the past year, I've almost been assaulted three times by homeless people. Like one threw an umbrella at me, one through a backpack, one screen. So point being, but mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't hold it on them because I had such a direct experience of yeah. loving someone who was homeless, understanding yeah. their mental illness. Um yeah. and I know that it's easier said than done, right? To, to, instead of being like this person's scary or this person's in my way Mm -hmm. to move into, wow, what happened in this person's life to be in this situation or be in this mindset. And I think a lot of people, our cup isn't full, we're tired and we don't have
1: capacity to have compassion for ourselves, let alone other people. Yeah, well, and it's also quite distressing. Like if you're really to open to the pain of people on the street, one of the reasons we don't is because it's, we're empathic. And right. When we feel their pain, we feel the distress of that pain. And it's overwhelming. So, kind of as a natural self protective mechanism, we shut down our hearts. Yeah. So, that's why self compassion I mean, it is possible to be compassionate to others and not yourself, but you won't be able to sustain it long. (laughs) Because if the compassion just goes one way, eventually you will burn out.
2: Mm -hmm. But what
1: self compassion could do, like let's take this example of a homeless person, you can validate, yeah, I'm scared, Mm -hmm. I'm frightened, something may happen. Um, And also, you need to, Kind of fiercely commit to protecting yourself. You don't want to make yourself vulnerable. At the same time, when you have your own back uh, and you acknowledge and validate the fact that it's you know distressing for you, then it starts to give you a sense of safety to be able to open your heart towards others as well. Mm. But, and those, if you exclude yourself in the circle of compassion, it's going to be hard to have the sense of safety and stability needed to open your heart to, heart to others. Okay. So, oh, you know, it. they really support each other.
0: Yeah. I never thought about it that way, that if you, part of the reason we, I mean, there's many reasons to have self-compassion, but we create safety for ourselves and yes. that allows us to give to others. I never thought about that way. It makes so much sense.
1: Like absolutely, how many
0: people in their romantic relationships say, I feel so safe with them and then they can be
1: themselves or they can be free. Exactly. That's right. And so it kind of gives you that sense of unconditional self-acceptance that, you know, hopefully, Uh, A relationship partner does, although, of course, it doesn't always work out that way. But when it does, one of the reasons it feels so good is because, you know, the bottom line is this person accepts you as you are. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest research findings with self-compassion is um, greater authenticity. Mm -hmm. The more you can accept yourself and care for yourself as you are, first of all, the less dependent you are on other people's opinions of you. And often we, we, we change ourselves to meet other people to get social approval. And we can actually be our authentic self, which is also why it's linked to happiness. Mm -hmm. It feels good to be our authentic, true self.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people are losing energy every day, wondering why they feel so burnt out because they're being someone else, and it's so exhausting to go against your own cells and grains. Yes. yes. Well, one thing you talk about that I found really interesting in your book was the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. Yes. Can you share, and I want to ask you about meditation. I have a bajillion questions. Um, so I guess I have to have compassion for myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just want to go everywhere. With you. But can we start with self-esteem? What? How did you look at that distinction? Why do you lean towards the self-compassion?
1: Yeah, so self-esteem, you can define that as a positive judgment or evaluation of self-worth. Where self-compassion is kind of just caring about yourself because you're an imperfect human being doing the best you can, (laughs) right? So they're both sources of self-worth, you might say. But the self-worth of self-compassion is unconditional. It just comes from being a flawed human being. Whereas typically, not always, but typically self-esteem, the judgment of self-worth is conditional. First of all, it depends on being special and above average, you know, so it's not okay to be average. We have to be above average to have high self-esteem, which is a problem because it's logically impossible for us all to be above average at the same time. Um, It sets up social comparison, right? If I have to be better than others to feel good about myself, I'm always saying, you know, "Is, is she more successful than I am? Or is he more, you know, athletic than I am or whatever it is? We um, create separation and division between people as we try to judge our own worth in contrast, in comparison to others. Hmm. Um, it can be linked to narcissism, right? Some people take the need for a high um, a positive judgment so seriously, they can't accept any feedback about themselves. They feel they're superior to others. Um, but it also leads to instability in self worth. In other words, self esteem is a fair weather friend. Mm. It's there for us when we succeed, when people like us, when we get praise, you know, when things are going well. But what happens when that's not the case? Mm. You know, when we're down, that's actually when self-esteem deserts us. But it's precisely when self-compassion steps in because it's this unconditional source of worth that doesn't depend on success or failure, whether or not people like you or you know whether you're better than others or 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 not. It's just okay, you're a human being, like like all human beings, and therefore you're worthy of care and kindness.
0: I love that so much. And um, I know that one of the things I love about your work is it's pretty tactical. So obviously one modality is meditation. I would love, I mean, I just started studying it. And and you know what, before I even ask you about that, speaking of um, self-worth and stuff like that, I feel like innately some people do feel superior in certain ways, right? Like I'm the best you know, I got a master's in spiritual psychology and I did it. So I'm going to become a spiritual snob and think that I know Uh people. Like, for example, I showed up at my meditation teacher training and I'm so glad to be there. And there's some people in the room that they're 21. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible. They're 21 and they're doing this work. Um, And then there's also some egoic part of me that's like, are these people going to hold me back because I've studied so much stuff? I'm ready to learn. Am I Uh like teaching them? Um, And so there's this very real human in me. Um, Mm. What do we do? How do we kind of be compassionate with that part of ourselves that is not the prettiest?
1: Yeah. Well, so we do have multiple parts. Um, So if you look at part psychology, internal family systems is Probably one of my favorite uh, modalities. We do have different parts of ourselves. We aren't like one unified unified way of thinking or feeling. We've got multiple parts that have some coherence, some pattern to them based on our past history. So, yeah, we need to have compassion for all our parts, right? So that, that each part has some validity. It's playing some role in the system, so to speak. We want to understand that mo- most of these parts, at sub level, are trying to help us, trying to help us be happy, trying to help us not to suffer. Even including the inner critic, that part of us that's critical is trying to keep us safe by like, keeping ourselves in line, or maybe you know beating others to the punch that so won't be so painful if other people criticize us. All these parts are really trying to keep ourselves safe. Mm-hmm. So you know, the part of you that maybe is judgmental—well, you know, this is probably playing some role in the sense that. You, know, you, are, you you are you do care about yourself. You do really want to make sure that your time is is used wisely. So really, just having compassion for all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no there's no need to, to label any of it as you know some parts are good, some parts are bad, or even that some people are good, some people are bad. I mean, yeah, there are behaviors that are helpful or unhelpful. And we really, as much as possible, want to focus on helpful behaviors, even though we'll also get that wrong because we're human beings. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's going back to that compassionate mess thing. Yeah, it's messy. Life is messy. It's complicated. A lot of factors are going on. Very complex. I mean, if you really want to draw out the, the causes and the, and the conditions that lead to any one moment of experience, Big, you know, they all go back to the big bang. That's how complex it is. Yeah. We need to have a lot of compassion for the messiness of, of our experience and just try to open our heart and do the best we can moment to moment. It's so beautiful to hear how you took a look at my
0: spiritual snob or how I judged it. And you said, well, this part of you wants to make sure that you're learning. And yeah. so I think that's so great for anyone who feels like, oh, I just saw an ugly part of myself. It's like, I think that's probably the work of NLP as well. It's just taking a look at yeah. like, how is this part serving you? What is it doing to look out for you? That's Take right. that and then drop the judgments if you can. Yeah, yeah.
1: To the extent that you can. You know, so it's, it's hard not to have some judgment. It's just the way the human mind works. But you can try not to let it completely control you. Um, you know, I think quieting those voices is challenging.
2: Mm -hmm. But you can
1: not only, you can move beyond them and listen to other voices. Because we also, you know, compassion, that's also part of our evolved nature. As human beings, we evolved this tendency to want to care for others. Now, typically, it's people we're close to. So it can be a little more challenging when people feel like they aren't like us, as we have to do a little work to remind ourselves. Like you said, someone who's homeless, the way they are like us, because the mind doesn't go there. But the the good good part of this is that desire to help, that desire to care, that's not something we've got to come up with Mm. and create from, you know, it's it's part of our biology.
2: Mm -hmm. Some
1: people say it's part of awareness itself, that the nature of just consciousness has a caring quality to it. And all we really need to do is open up to what's already there. And if you're a spiritual person, you can slot whatever spiritual tradition you have in that also, I think, takes that point of view. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that difficult to do. It's just it's more challenging to remember and also to give ourselves permission, Mm. especially for ourselves. And I know that one piece of compassion can often look like having
0: boundaries, which can be abrasive for someone who struggles with that. So one thing that comes to mind, for example, I'm in a book club in New York. There's a couple um, it's a self-development book club. So we read different self-help books and um, one of the girls, she's a partner at a law firm and she's very, um, critical of the books because that's what she's good at doing is like examining, you know, uh-huh. so she doesn't want to read any more self-development books because she thinks, who are these people that tell me how to live my life or their, their qualifications or whatever. Uh-huh. And I don't want to be in this book club. That was her thing that she said in front of everybody at the book club. And it was interesting. Cause I really didn't mind. I was like, for me, I was like, oh, that's neutral. Like she, this isn't for her. Um, and I think she said it in a threatening way in the text group, like, you know, if this is what's to come in this book club, it's not a fit for me. And I was like, no problem. Wish you the best, you know, uh-huh. so for me, I wanted to, I didn't have any trigger with her. Um, I didn't think she did the best job, you know, like being kind about it. Yeah. But it was all good. And I think it shocked her that I was like, all oh, good. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Love whatever you're reading and hopefully we'll cross paths in New York, you know? Uh Yeah. Yeah. And so it was almost like I set a boundary through being compassionate with myself. Like, oh, I don't want to be in a book club with somebody who doesn't want to be in a book club with me or in this. Right. So how do you, what, what, what are some thoughts you can share with everybody around boundaries? Cause it seems to be something that I've been able to navigate decently well, but I know that so many people struggle with it.
1: Yeah. Well, so I teach some fear, self-compassion workshops. And one of the things we talk about is discomfort, drawing boundaries. Mm -hmm. It's actually really worth investigating. You know, what are those beliefs or those feelings of discomfort that come up? Um, Often they're mixed. Sometimes it's, I don't want people to judge me or I want people to like me. And there's some fear that if I say no or draw a boundary, they won't like me. Um, Sometimes it's just truly just the desire to help. And not enough attention to the fact that we have limited resources. And if we don't, if we just say yes to everyone we'd like to help, we're going to have no resources left over to help anyone, right? So I'm really, you know, figuring out, well, what are some of the reasons you're uncomfortable drawing boundaries or you have trouble? And understanding that drawing boundaries is an essential part of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just give and give and you lose yourself, you'll have nothing left to give. Right. Right. So just in being wise about what you choose to say yes to, what you choose to say no to. Um, and, you know, for me, one of the things self-compassion practice has given me is I'm not that invested in what other people think of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so it means I it's okay for me to draw a boundary because even though, yeah, they might like it more if I did what they asked. For me, it's more important that, I've, that I, you know, balance my energy levels in a way that's sustainable for me. And it gives you the ability to be authentic, right? Mm-hmm. If you say yes and you don't really mean it and you're doing it because other people want you to, then you can approach that, whatever it is you're doing, in a way that's not totally healthy.
0: Yeah, and kind of going back to what you were sharing with having compassion for yourself, it's like setting a boundary is about having compassion for yourself so you can feel safe with you to set that yeah. boundary with others. Like it's okay for me to be me. It's so uh, I'm allowed. That's right. Out. Beautiful.
2: That's right.
0: Um, okay. So modalities, tools. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about this show is that there's so many uh, brilliant minds. Like I'm so excited. I get to talk to you about these things and they have different tools. And I love mm-hmm. that everybody kind of gets similar healing maybe, but through different places. And yeah, how infinite it is, the ways that we can ascend or actualize or feel better or find compassion. So meditation seems to really um, have resonated for you. Um, Can you explain Mm -hmm. even the scientific side of it? Like, Why do you think it works on a scientific level or on a personal level? I'd just love to understand it with everyone.
1: Yeah. Well, so just maybe to preface this in the mindful self-compassion program that are developed with Chris Germer, we do have some meditations. We have a lot of practices that are designed just to be done in everyday life, like not like a set time each day, but maybe putting your hand on your heart or saying some words of support. And in our research, we found it didn't matter what you practiced; It mattered that you practiced, right? So people who practice self-compassion more gained more self-compassion. Some people didn't meditate. They just did the stuff in everyday life and they gained just as much. So there's not necessarily um, any requirement that you meditate to learn a new skill, although one of the reasons it can be helpful. So often what happens um, when we are not paying attention to what's happening is um, our mind wanders. About half the time, our mind wanders. And when it wanders, the brain is designed to do this. Our default mode network is engaged. It's called the default mode because it's kind of like when we aren't doing anything else, this is what our brain naturally does. Does three things. Creates a sense of self, projects that in the past or future, and looks for problems. Mm -hmm. So basically, our mind, our natural tendency of the mind is to be self-focused to be worrying about something, to be regretting something and to try to keep ourselves safe by looking, having a negative focus. One of the things meditation does is it actually quiets down the default mode. You can actually look at it in brain scans. So what happens is once the default mode quiets down by by the practice of meditation, which is just intentionally paying attention to some sort of object, is when, when that sense of self is lessened, and that sense of negativity is lessened and worry and, and rumination lessens, then you can start to get in touch with um, other aspects of yourself, like a, a more expanded sense of self, a more loving, a, a kinder sense of self. Eventually, that's, that sense of self itself actually starts to dissolve there's more feelings of connection with the larger whole. Um, and also what happens when you get in this state is you start to rewire your brain, right? So for instance, it can actually be even structural changes in your brain when you practice the state of mind often enough because it's not entirely natural, right? You practice it enough intentionally and it can start to change the normal patterns of your mind. So for instance, meditators, their default mode doesn't just quiet while they're meditating, but also just in daily life, it's less active. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful, um, because it allows you to really focus and set your intention. But it's, you know, it's not for everyone. Some people don't have time or the inclination. And and it's not necessarily superior, but it it does offer some advantages because of that.
2: Mm. Uh,
0: Is there a certain amount of time that you have found seems to be a sweet spot for meditation, like this many minutes per day, or this often per day, or any of that?
1: Yeah, I I know there's some research on it. And I'm going to be totally honest. I don't know what it's found. But personally, Mm -hmm. I find it takes about 20 minutes Mm -hmm. for the default mode to calm down. No matter matter if I'm focused or not focused, about 20 minutes. And so I think at least 20 minutes is good if possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even just little mini moments throughout the day helps just, Mm -hmm. just intentionally shifting your mindset One thing to do is um, to kind of notice not only what you're aware of, but that you are aware. Like right now, we're talking, we're seeing each other, but both of us can just become aware of the fact that we are aware of what's happening. And right in that moment, we've we've made that shift. You know, instead of just the focus on what's happening to the awareness of what's happening. And the more we get in contact with awareness itself, You might say the more degrees of freedom we have, the more spaciousness we have um, for things to unfold.
0: What's going on you, Turner? This episode, I wanted to take a moment to just acknowledge one of my absolute favorite brands in the world, making the biggest impact on my day-to-day beauty and its herbal face food. It's the only skincare product that I've become so obsessed with. I use it every day. I didn't even reach out and ask them to sponsor the podcast. I wanted to just stop by and highlight one of my favorite things. I am the first person to admit that I obsess over skincare. If I could make my skin look like I'm seven years old, I probably would. And I want to share with you the one thing that I've been using that has changed my skin and it's the cure product from Herbal Face Foods. So if you have acne or hormonal acne or even a melasma, any discoloration on your face, it literally cured my hormonal acne in less than two weeks. It left my skin feeling so soft, so smooth. And since I'm really particular about what I put in my body, I also care about what goes on to my body. So Herbal Face Foods product is made from 57 natural botanicals and their products are antiviral and yes they are so natural that you can literally eat them though I probably don't recommend trying to I loved it so much that I wanted to reach out to them and get the discount code for you so that you can experience them so just head on over to ashleystahl.com slash skin that's a-s-h-l-e-y-s-t-a-h-l dot com slash skin and use the code Ashley 20 at checkout to get a discount on your order. I love their serum and I love their cure product. I use it every morning, every night. And it's just been such a game changer, making me look younger. My face look brighter. I hear from so many of you. I wanted instead of posting an ad right here to just share and shout out one of my favorite brands and give you this promo code of Ashley 20 over at herbal face foods. Thanks again for tuning in and back to the episode. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I, a few questions about meditation. Like I know that the intention is to not be so lost in your thoughts or and, and everybody feels like, you know, I'm doing it wrong or I can't stop thinking. And that's the nature of it, right? You were just saying yeah. that's what our mind wants to do. Yeah. Um. In one of my meditation classes, they said, pick a focus of your meditation, pick an intention of it. And I thought, but if I focus on something, then I'm thinking about something versus just paying attention to my paying attention
1: to my breath. Um, yeah, so that's what they mean by focus. So there are two types of meditation: there's focused awareness and open awareness. Mm-hmm. Focused awareness is any time um, we focus something on, on one object, like might be the breath. It's very hard to focus. You don't you aren't thinking about it; you're just being aware of it. So you're thinking about the breath; you're feeling the breath. Or you mm-hmm. might, you know say, a mantra, or you might uh, just focus on the kind of the movement of the breath. Mm -hmm. Anytime you focus on one thing, it has the effect of calming and settling the mind, quieting the default mode. Mm. Uh, And then, but the idea is once your mind is settled, um, you can just stay with that quietness, or you can start to open up your awareness. And it's hard to do it without getting caught. But Once your default mode is quiet, you can start noticing other things like sensations, or you might even notice the thought that comes up without being lost in it, or um, you know emotions that come up. That's a really good time to start practicing noticing the feeling of your heart and feelings of love that are actually there in awareness itself, getting in, in touch with them, right? And then that can be a very um, nurturing form of meditation when you're feeling Love, right? So there's a lot of different ways to go in meditation. Um, But like I said, primarily what the the primary purpose of meditation is to move toward being more aware of being aware, Mm -hmm. right? We're opening to awareness itself and meditation by quieting ourselves, we're less distracted by our thoughts and, and the busyness of everyday life. Hmm. okay so let's say somebody
0: wants to focus on on love and then uh-huh. they start visualizing their partner their dog um do you have any insight on like how you would navigate that if your mind starts to go there do you let your mind go there or do you go back to the word love and that's it right
1: so it just depends on your goal is your intention are you trying to calm and settle the mind or not so if you, if your mind isn't settled then you can just get easily lost in the storyline Right. So once your mind so there's a type of meditation called loving-kindness meditation, whose whole purpose, function it is, is to generate feelings of love and kindness. So what you do, and then it's kind of a very structured meditation. You think of different people, including yourself, maybe your pet, yourself, you know, a partner, a family member, someone you really admire, a benefactor in some way. And you might use language like, may you be well, may you be happy, may you live with ease, kind of try to generate those feelings of goodwill toward that person, um, including yourself. Mm. And that's a very tried and true form of meditation. And one of the benefits of that is uh, increased self-compassion and compassion for others. Mm. So there are are ways you can do it. But you can also just, um, you know, settle into your body and put your hands on your heart and just kind of feel the sensation of warmth there. Right. And just. Um, allow yourself to, to experience that feeling of care toward maybe whatever suffering or discomfort you're having, physical discomfort, emotional discomfort. And say some words to yourself of kindness, of warmth, of encouragement, of, of support. And it doesn't have to take a particular pattern, although things like loving kindness meditation, they're useful. Because it is a type of mind training that has a long history. I've got so on my website, I have a lot of different meditations, including a couple different types of loving kindness meditation. That is perfect for everyone to check out.
0: We'll put that in the show notes if you're listening and you want to check that out. Um, I know in your book, you talk about hugging and you talk about changing your self-talk. So I know the idea of compassion is to change your self-talk. Like, how are you uh, relating to yourself? Yes. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit about that. What is it about hugging yourself or a- any other practices that you can offer us?
1: Yeah. And it's not necessarily hugging any sort of touch. You can get hands in your heart, hands in your face. So um, physical touch works purely through physiology because as mammals, right, and especially as human mammals, we evolved to interpret touch as the signal of care. Mm-hmm. Think about babies before they can understand language. Their primary love and care is primarily communicated to infants through the sense of touch. And so it actually works through the nervous system, touch tends to deactivate things like cortisol and sympathetic response, fight, flight, or freeze, it helps us feel safe, it increases heart rate variability. And so this research, for instance, that just as like when someone else touches us, our physiology calms down, the same thing happens with self-touch. Mm. But the reason touch is so useful is because sometimes our minds can't go there. You know, we're just full of the storyline of how bad we are, or how awful the situation is. But you just touch yourself and feel the warmth of your hands and you kind of enter through your body. Your body starts to relax and calm down and feel safe. And then that can facilitate um, the thoughts and emotions of, of compassion as well.
0: And I saw you put your hands on your heart, so is that where you tend to go?
1: That's where I tend to go for some people, they don't you know people are different. Some people are the faith, some people are the hug, some people hold their own hand for me it's it's very much my heart. Mm-hmm. Some people actually, if they want to if it feels a little too vulnerable, they can put a fist kind of symbolizing strength. the other hand over it like a strength with love gesture helps a lot. So I, one of the practices we teach is we to encourage people to find the type of touch that works for them personally. Everyone's totally unique.
2: Mm,
0: okay. So, I mean, you have such a body of work. I'm curious, um, just to hear from you as you've written these books, what is some of the most interesting research that you've come across, validating research, surprising research uh, that you just want us to know as we're considering this journey of self-compassion?
1: Well, I think maybe it it wasn't surprising to me, but maybe some of the most important research is the research on motivation, because there's research showing that belief that self-compassion will undermine our motivation is the number one block that people have. And once you start loosening that belief, compassion becomes much more accessible. Mm. So there's a lot of great research. Um, like you know, kind of like what we did, I said what we did with the athletes, right? The NCAA athletes that if you, I talked about that, right? Yeah. yeah. Just want to make sure I'm not <laughs> I do a lot of these talks, but right. So, so that for a high level, top tier NC double athlete, being compassionate about either failure in, in a game you did, or maybe your training that being encouraging, as opposed to just harshly self-critical actually improves performance. You know, so actually it's a form of motivation. It's not a motivation of fear, which is you better increase or else I'll hate you or you'll be worthless. It's a motivation of care. You know, because I care, I want you to try as best you can to reach your goals. How can I help? How mm-hmm. can we learn? How can we grow? Mm-hmm. And it's, it, the research is very clear showing that it's a more effective form of motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once people know that, then they're a little less hesitant. You know, and that it also means doesn't mean that people doesn't mean letting yourself slide. You can be fierce if you need to. You can say, "Hey, this behavior is not acceptable. I need to change. I maybe need to change my job. I need to change unfairness." It's not just about acceptance. It's the balance of acceptance and change. Mm, A lot of people, they don't understand that. And that also makes them afraid of Mm, self-compassion. They think self-compassion is just accepting it all. Just accepting it all. all. It's not accepting behaviors or situations that cause harm. Quite the opposite. It inspires us. It's kind of, I call it like, it's like mother and mama bear. You know, Mm -hmm. the fierce Mm -hmm. and the tender, both are equally important to uh, caring for ourselves and others. Mm, Beautiful. And A lot of
0: what you just said kind of reminds me of inner child work. It's like I had a friend in an abusive relationship and I would say to her, like, you know, we looked at her little girl picture. She was five. And I'm like, if some guy was treating this little girl like this, would you let her stand in this? And she's like, no, I would push her out of the way. I would protect her. I'm like, so then what are you doing to yourself? Uh Um, So, yeah. And any exercises or things that you have just found to be really surprising or anything that you do on an ongoing basis in a routine that you've found really useful for all of us
1: uh well yeah there's so many I mean there's I know like practices um maybe in terms of what's surprising I think' a lot of su- surprising for people is when teaching people how to switch from self-critical motivation the the compassionate motivation for years and years I tried to do this and it just wasn't working and the key was having compassion for our inner critic, mm. right? So we need to acknowledge the efforts of the inner critic that it's trying to keep us safe. It's trying to help us. If we don't validate it, then it gets frightened. and Oh, my God, if it don't listen to me, you know, she's, she's going to do something really scary or dangerous. So, yes, we listen to our inner critic. We value it as contributions for trying to keep us safe. And we open to other voices that can keep us actually more effective at keeping us safe, which is the voice of compassion. We don't want to get rid of any of our parts. We want to have compassion and really more than compassion, gratitude for what they bring to the table. Hmm. Um, and then that actually is what allows us to switch to more self-compassionate motivation. Ah, oh, so. you are just so
0: full of beautiful information. Is there something I haven't asked you that would have been helpful
1: for me to ask? Um, Well, maybe just one thing to, to talk about because it's you know my my latest book, Fear Self Compassion. I, I wrote it for women, Um, and and I'm not talking about biological sex or even gender identity. People socialized as women, which is different, right? You might be non-binary, but socialized as a man or a woman. That gender role socialization really does a number on everyone, not just people who raised as women, people raised as men, people raised in any narrow rigid script for how they're supposed to be. Because it it gets in the way of our ability to integrate the fierce and the tender. Mm. People raised as boys, they're allowed to be fierce, but they aren't allowed to be tender. They get called names. People raised as girls, you know, if they're they're too fierce, they get too angry. They called they're called different names. People don't like people who are women and, and too fierce. And what this does is it interferes with our ability to integrate yin and yang, fierce and tender. Right. And it kind of makes us half whole. And just to be aware of that and start to see how gender social socialization constricts us and that part of being self-compassionate and really loving yourself is really allowing all sides of you <laughs> to be present, and to develop both the fierce and the tender, you know, again, regardless of your gender identity that this is something about being a human being. Mm-hmm. And we don't even we aren't even aware of how gender role socialization constricts us at every term, but it does a lot of harm. You know, mm-hmm. so just when you start being aware of that, you start realizing, hmm, am I going to buy into this, what mm-hmm. society tells me is true for me, or am I going to find out what's true for me authentically? Mm-hmm. And really that's an important step, scary step, but an important step in finding authenticity and wholeness.
2: Mm,
0: Okay. So for everyone listening who wants to be more compassionate with themselves after this podcast interview, as we go, before I ask you where everybody can find you and we'll put it in the show notes too, um, what's one small thing that you would love to just recommend
1: people think about doing today? Okay. Very easy. Um, Sometime today when you relate, maybe notice you're being a little tough on yourself or harsh, just ask yourself, Would I say this to a friend I cared about? And if the answer is no, you can just think, well, what would I say that would really be truly helpful? Not just like saying nice things, but what would I say that would be truly helpful to a friend I cared about? And then try saying something similar to yourself. It's Mm -hmm. not rocket science. You know, you know how to do it. You just have to remember to do it. And what would you say to someone that's like, yeah, but what if I don't
0: believe it? What if I feel like I'm just saying something,
1: you know? Well, it does feel unnatural at first because... Against um, self compassion actually evolved to care for others. So it feels a little weird. Uh, so it's not so much you, you don't have to believe anything because you aren't saying like in every way and every day I'm getting stronger. Maybe you aren't. It's not positive thinking. It's just caring, mm-hmm. right? Just trying to be supportive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so even if you don't feel it, you can set your intention to be more supportive. And just setting your intention. In and of itself is a compassionate act to try to be more helpful for yourself. Mm. So you don't you don't want to argue with yourself, you know, you want to be honest. This feels this feels fake. Okay. Well, nonetheless. Passion for that. Yeah. Passion for that. Exactly. And it's really just about putting one foot in front of the other, trying to be as helpful and supportive as you can towards yourself. Mm. It's going to help you be stronger dealing with the tough stuff. If you're an ally as opposed to an enemy toward yourself, you know, of course it will.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, so
1: it, it works. It helps.
0: Oh, yeah. And and I um, Well, you have so much out there. I'm curious. Where do you feel like everyone can start learning from you? Where's the best place to begin?
1: Uh, selfcompassion.org. Just, you know, I got it early. So just Google self-compassion. You'll find me. And I have a lot of uh, free guided practices. Um, if you're if you're into research, I've got a lot of research on there. You can take your own self you can test your own self-compassion level on this information. That's really the best place to start. And then if you're interested in actually learning the skill, there's a link to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, the nonprofit I co-founded, where you can actually take some training. So
2: mm. and I
1: also have a lot of books out there if you want to, if you want to try those as well. Thank you so much again
0: for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.